Travel writer Paul Theroux has seen America from sea to shining sea. In fact, when he's not traveling, he divides his time between a home on Cape Cod and one on Oahu's North Shore. He says there's just something about being near the ocean. No matter how crowded it is on land, you can always escape to the sea. You can swim away, you can paddle away, you can sail away. Coming up, Paul Theroux tells us about the Hawaii that's behind his novel, Under the Wave at Waimea, and how it keeps him feeling young. Roman Mars likes to view the world with a designer's eye. He says the hidden stories behind what we see can really amplify the meaning of the cities we call home. A city is always a conversation between top-down designers and bottom-up interventionists, and that conversation is what a city is. Roman suggests what a curious urbanist can look for around the block in the 99% Invisible City. That's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in 100 essays. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. His travels to the far corners of the world have inspired dozens of works Paul Theroux has written over the last 50-plus years. He takes us down the road from his home turf near Honolulu in his latest novel. Paul reveals what's under the wave at Waimea a little later in the hour ahead. Roman Mars has been taking a closer look at his surroundings near San Francisco. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to show us how to look past all the visual clutter and understand the details of how our own cities are put together. There are clues we overlook all around us. When a construction crew starts to work on a new site, have you noticed they write their own language of graffiti on the sidewalk out front? Never wondered what it meant? Well, so has Roman Mars. He's the host of 99% Invisible, a podcast that's all about revealing the hidden world of design and architecture that exists all around us. Roman uncovers the history, the clever design, and the layers of work it takes to make a city work. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about about that which he explores in his latest book, and it's called The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. Roman, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, your podcast, 99% Invisible, is just so fascinating because you take all these nearly invisible and minuscule details of our urban world and share them. How do you research that? How do you know about so much of this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess you research it like you research most things. The first step is just to like pay attention and sort of, uh, you know, follow your curiosity of, of what that little marking is about and then you just start asking questions and, and finding the right people who are experts. And there's usually some expert on some city planning board who knows the thing. And then you talk to them. Because I just love walking through a town and, and you realize residents can live there for decades and never notice something. But then if you do notice it and you find out about it, you, you have a, a little more depth of understanding. And for me, as a tour guide, you know, that's the art of sightseeing is, is not just yeah, walking yeah. through a town, but walking through a town and, and knowing what to notice. Uh, it works abroad and it works right at home in our, in our own towns. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more natural when you're traveling because you're attuned to the differences that differences from where you, your home is. And the sort of the ethos of the 99% Invisible City and the podcast is, is to use that same eye around yeah. the mundane things that you tend to miss in your own neighborhood. And it can it can turn a town that some casual observer might say has got nothing to offer 
into kind mm-hmm. of a, a wonderland, a cultural scavenger hunt, uh, an engineering scavenger hunt. It's just, it's an important skill for travelers. And it's occurred to me that, you know, we can't travel during this pandemic, but we can go downtown and we can take a hike. <laughs> so yeah. take us on a little walk just to impress upon us the wonders that are hiding there. Any town USA, what might we see? Well, I mean, as you mentioned in the in the opening, um, the, if you see spray painted graffiti on the street, um, those are marks that indicate the type of conduits and pipes and wires that are running underneath the city, and they're everywhere. And if there's some piece of construction, they're marked so that nobody cuts through them accidentally. That was because of a horrible incident that happened in Culver City in the 1970s. There was a petroleum line that was cut through when it was unmarked, and it caused an explosion that leveled a city block and from then on, there's been this effort to label all those things with spray paint so that nothing like that happens again. So you'll see those. You'll see curb cuts, you know, especially in Berkeley. Those started here. Those are the little ramps that allow for accessibility on, on sidewalks. Those were started because of a, a fellow named Ed Roberts was the first quadriplegic at uh, UC Berkeley. And him and an activist group called the Rolling Quads uh, started smashing up hard ledged corners and and created ramps with sledgehammers and concrete and those eventually became uh, codified across the world we'll see traffic lights you know those might seem every day but when you think about them like why is the red above the green all the time at some point that was decided and there's one you know city in in north america where in syracuse new york where the green is above the red because it's in an Irish neighborhood and they didn't want unionist red <laughs> above Republican green, you know, and, I and love there's that. all kinds of things as you take the walk, you can find stories, not just of where you are, but they hearken yeah. to, to other places and times. And you can read into what's going on. I mean, speaking of uh, streetlights, I was in Vienna and the streetlights there for pedestrians show a same sex couple holding hands walking yeah. across yeah. the street or stopping. And Vienna wanted to make a statement because their national government was homophobic because it was more conservative and their city government was more liberal. And they wanted to make a stand that tourists, you heard things about Austria, but Vienna has a different attitude about this. And it it shows through in the city design. You might not notice that, but when you do notice it, it celebrates that local culture, doesn't it? It does. And the same-sex couple icon is another thing that I think is really important is that the built world is a reflection of our values. And it's interesting as a part of the story to pay attention to those things. I mean, the values of accessibility, the values of um, equitability are all there. Hmm. And yeah. and it's it's good to notice them and it's fun to watch them change and over time. And one person can you know do something as a matter of principle crash the curb so a wheelchair can get down there. (laughs) And suddenly, Mm -hmm. all over the world, they're redesigning curbs to accommodate people in wheelchairs. You can make a difference. Absolutely. And and the built environment is a huge reflection of that. I mean, for the most part, the built environment is made for a wide swath of people. I do believe that city planners and designers uh, have mostly good intentions in mind, Mm -hmm. but a city is always a conversation between, you know, top-down designers and bottom-up interventionists, and and that conversation is what a city is. And so, I love that the story of a city is that conversation, and it's fun to notice those little points of of, of the plot of that story. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Roman Mars, and Roman studies the obscure and unknown details of how a city comes together in his book, The Ninety Nine Percent Invisible City a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. 
It's based on Roman's podcast called 99% Invisible. And Roman has more about hidden design and architecture at 99pi.org. That's 99pi for, that must mean... Uh, percent Invisible. Percent Invisible dot org. <laughs> Roman, you talk quite a bit about infrastructure in your book. Uh, distinctive forms of transportation that give a city character, whether it's futuristic or um, nostalgic and part of its heritage. Yeah, um, I'm always intrigued by, you know, uh, novel forms of, of transit, you know, like it, uh, double-decker buses in, in London or canals in Venice. And in particular, we've done a recent story about the skyways of Minneapolis and St. Paul. They all say something about the city that they're in. Yeah, they, they've got, uh, what's the nickname, hamster tubes or something like that. You wrote about how people see how many weeks they can go without ever stepping outside in Minneapolis <laughs> through the winter. What exactly. is there, 10 miles of these tunnels? And you notice that yeah. when you go to Minneapolis and you realize, yeah, if I lived here, I'd be thankful for those things. Yeah, but they're they're also kind of complicated because, you know, a city's life and vibrancy is sort of dependent on its first story and it removes everyone yeah. from from the street and and then all of a sudden you're instead of in a public space you're in this kind of quasi private kind of public space and that means it can can be controlled differently and again, these are it's a these challenge. Are, you know, choices, you know, like you can figure that stuff out, you know, like if if it's good or bad mm-hmm. on balance, but it's it's I just think it's fun to examine them. One thing I like is uh, cities that have taken elevated rail lines and turned them into parks. Yeah. Well, I mean, the dramatic version of that, the High Line in, in New York, is really a stunning park. I, I, I truly love it. And it is as hyped as it is and how, you know, I think I have a tendency to sort of like try to dismiss the big attractions and try to go for the small attractions. That one really delivers. <laughs> in Paris, you have a, a similar situation where an old elevated train line has been turned into a park. It's just a delightful way to get above the traffic really and to look into people's condominium windows and uh, to have <laughs> a chance to sit on a bench and en- enjoy the city view. And you also talk about uh, a new trend called parklets, little tiny parks. Yeah, there's a sort of version of this that started in, in San Francisco of um, a thing called Parking Day. And it was sort of a reaction to the fact that so much of our you know city space is, is devoted to cars and in particular devoted to cars that are not doing anything. They're just sitting there doing nothing. And so hmm. Parking Day started as, as people like putting a few quarters in the meter and instead of parking a car there, they would put down some sod or they would put down a mini golf course or they would you know do things like that. And those parklets are you know, kind of a interventionist reaction to say like, you know, like this space is public. Yeah. Let's play with it a little bit, you know, not, not just use it as a, a place for, you know, cars to sit. And I think a lot of city governments are intentionally penalizing drivers, making drivers frustrated by giving up traffic lanes for bike lanes and pedestrian lanes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if, if frustrating drivers is, is the, the intent necessarily. <laughs> well, they willingly <laughs> do, think do that. that. They risk doing that. <laughs> they, they, they certainly do. <laughs> but I do think that what I think is interesting about, you know, watching different cities, how they function and how they prioritize around uh, cars. I mean, cars, cities have been built around cars and especially in the U.S. for a really long time. And so much so that we think of streets as just the domain of cars. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the history of roads and, and roads in other cities are much more multimodal. There's more pedestrians, there's more um, vendors, there's more people walking uh, and and bicycles. Hmm. The choice to give streets just to cars is a real choice. And and that's one that we've like gone really hard into in the the US. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, I think that as COVID people are experimenting when they when they realized they needed more public space outside together, a reclamation of the streets 
is kind of happening. And it'll be interesting to see if any of that stuff sticks. Well, it is that kind of a tug of war because, you know, everybody needs more room to get around more quickly. I know in, in London they have this congestion zone or congestion yeah. fee where if you drive past a certain street, you have to pay quite a bit of money. And if you live yeah. there or if you're a taxi, you can come in and out. But otherwise, you better park your car outside and use public transit. And uh, the same thing, I think, in Oslo. And uh, in Paris, they've made a huge uh, decision to take really important arteries that went along the river. And in the summer, they turned it into a beach and uh, there's no more <laughs> traffic there. And the beach is great, uh, but the consequences, cars don't have a, a major way to get from A to B, but it's a city decision and the people seem to love it. Yeah. I think that when you reclaim a little bit of the space from cars, like generally people enjoy it and have a, you know, have a chance to spread out and, and use their city in a different way. And I think it's worth experimenting with, you know, different ways to do things. I mean, I have a car. I like cars. Mm -hmm. I just want the city to be active and responsive and adaptive. And I think playing with the way that cars use the city is, is a good way to sort of experiment. you've discovered about the place you call home. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. There's more with Roman Mars on the 99% Invisible City in just a minute. And later, Paul Theroux takes us into his world on the north shore of Oahu in Hawaii. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Ich bin Fabian aus Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. I'm Fabian from Germany and that was German for I Travel with Rick Steves. Ich bin Fabian aus Deutschland und ich reise mit Rick Steves. We're exploring the hidden world of urban design that surrounds you today in any modern city. Our guest, Roman Mars, is joining us on Travel with Rick Steves from his home studio in Berkeley, California. Hey, Roman, a lot of this stuff is little and intimate, and if you blink, you miss it. A lot of it is big. I mean, uh, mm. you, you write that a skyscraper is a machine that is designed to turn land into money, or you quote somebody who said that. Uh, yeah. I love looking at skyscrapers and, and having a little appreciation of what they're doing there. And, and there are engineering innovations that make skyscrapers possible that a lot of people don't appreciate. For sure. I mean, in addition to the fact that just putting metal inside of a skyscraper was its own innovation, I mean, if you imagine that the weight of a skyscraper is dependent on the you know, materials at the base and for a long time, masonry had these limitations as to how tall a skyscraper can be. And hmm. if you made it taller and taller, you had to make the walls in the bottom hmm. thicker and thicker until someone finally figured out, you know, the steel reinforcement. And then all of a sudden the walls of a building weren't the thing that holding it up anymore. The walls were just kind of a curtain to keep the weather out. And what was keeping a building mm. up is the, is the structure underneath it. It had a skeleton all of a sudden. I love those solving engineering problems. With that, you can have different races just to be the tallest. And it's kind of fun to know that this skyscraper was built and the other skyscraper was built and they put an antenna on top of it so it would be three yards taller than the other one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or, and the skylines give the city uh, its personality. I mean, you look at London, you, you, you look at Singapore, they put a lot of local pride into their skylines. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge part of what makes a city a city. I mean, it's not, the, it's not always the most important part. And I think one of the things that I like, I love being a pedestrian, honestly. Like, I like a, I'm a walker. And I think that often when we look at a city and we see the skyline, 
you know, that's kind of how we often picture cities from far away, but really the way you encounter a city is in those first couple of stories, you know? And so, yeah. um, we love paying attention to both, you know, like I, I love a good tall building, a dramatic building, but I also think it, I love the first floor and the, just the bodegas and the, and speaking, the shops. Speaking and the, of first floors, you write about, uh, there's a couple of cases I know about where there there's, happens to be a church that owned the property, right? And, and it's yeah. a skyscraper now and the church is on the first couple of floors and they're renting out 20 yeah. floors above and that church is pretty well set up financially. <laughs> yeah, the, the example from that is the, the Citicorp Tower in, in Midtown Manhattan and that actually caused a huge problem. There was a church on the corner and so the building had to be built above it and they put the supports rather than at the corners of the building, they were sort of in the midline of the building. So ah. it was kind of a, a skyscraper on, on stilts. Yeah. And they discovered late in the process after it was already a building that was occupied for many years that it had some danger of falling over in the wind if it hit on the corner of the building and they, they fixed it secretly at the night. Oh my goodness. Uh, because otherwise they, there was a fear that it would fall over and, and uh, really destroy Midtown Manhattan. Prayer could only do so much. Yeah. And uh, th yeah. it's just fun to know the little backstory about the skyscrapers. But let's get small again right now. I mean, okay. a lot of small urban features are designed actually to shape human behavior. These can be a little bit harsh, but sometimes it's got to be done. What are some examples of little urban designs that have a, a motive? Yeah, well, there's a class of architecture that's often called like hostile architecture or hostile design. And, and things that might seem innocuous, um, they have an influencing in, intent. So the ones that are kind of obvious that feel kind of harsh are um, you'll sometimes see spikes on the ground to stop people from sleeping rough in cities. Mm -hmm. There's ones that are less obvious that are kind of like on the edges of things. They'll they'll have decorative knobs or something that are yeah. to discourage sitting, even though they're they're decoration, but they really are there to stop you from staying. Probably more sort of an innocuous, but that do sort of same purpose is armrests on benches, which are there to help your arms and so they serve a good purpose. Like it's nice to have an armrest when you're on a bench, mm -hmm. but they are also there to stop you from lying down and getting comfortable. And you might not feel that the same way in a park, but you definitely have felt the ill effects of this. If you've ever had a really long layover in an airport, <laughs> you're like, why can't I just lay down? And they, there is not a place. There's always armrests. I have airport. spent so much time trying to figure out how to be comfortable with two armrests <laughs> in, in my six feet of body length. And uh, it's, it's not easy to do, is it? <laughs> it's that way by design. <laughs> and I've, I've been in many subways in Europe where I, I want to sit down. I'm tired. And the benches are just designed at an angle, you know, so you can't yeah, really get comfortable. Exactly. You can lean on it a little bit, but you're not going to sit there and settle in, no. that's for sure. Seattle puts uh, bike racks uh, in places that might otherwise be a, a homeless camp. Yeah, there was a case of that in Seattle. And, and the part of it that's, you know, it wasn't really a good functional, like it, no one needed a bike rack there. It was really just yeah. used to, to stop yeah. tents from being yeah. put there. But the thing about sort of hostile design is that you know, sometimes it has good intent and sometimes it, it's overreaching and it, it's not so much that it's necessarily bad or, or good, but it's really case by case. And what's nice to know when you explore these things, the design intent 
it's just that going it with eyes open and decide, does that reflect your values? You know, this is your city too. And, and just sort of have a say in it. And, and, you know, armrests are perfectly fine in some instances. And sometimes they're really, you know, restrictive in other instances and just know it. You don't want skateboarders keeping up late at night. So they stick spikes on places that are great for skateboarding. (laughs) They Um, they certainly do. And if you're, if you're a pigeon, you get just really frustrated by all those little wires that (laughs) stick on the windowsill. And when I'm acting like a a little uh, juvenile and I want to slide down a banister at some ancient site in Europe, they've got spikes there that would make that a very painful exercise. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I was was in a city in Switzerland. Uh, Where was I? It was Lucerne. And I went into the public toilet and it had blue lights. Have you ever encountered that? Yeah, that's pretty common in the UK too. And those are meant to to stop intravenous drug use inside yeah. of public restrooms. And so that you can't really see your blue veins like through your skin with blue lights. And so it's meant to discourage that. I don't know like 100% how effective that really mm-hmm. is, but that was definitely the intent when it was put in. You know, I've heard that. And I've gone to places where for whatever reason, there's more hard drug addicts. In many countries, they're not in jail. They're out just struggling and trying to get their lives on mm-hmm. track. And they need a place to get out of the rain and, and shoot up. And in areas where there's people struggling, you find blue lights in the public access bathrooms, and it must yeah. be what that's for. That's what that makes sense to me. But, yeah. but lighting does have a purpose. A lot of times it's safety, and you notice that when you walk around a town, how, how the lighting is not accidental. For sure. I mean, in, and in a lot of ways, light was the first form of uh, city control over, over its citizenry. And, and people, like in the beginning when public lighting was, uh, was presented, uh, especially electric public lighting, you know, a lot of the people of the neighborhood did not like it. <laughs> they would right. smash it out, you know, like, yeah. and they, they thought it was a form of the state control. And now it's become so ubiquitous that we don't think of it as, as being something that is, infringes upon our rights. But that was definitely the take when it originated. And just beautiful lighting. I, I'm such a, I'm a fan of thoughtful, artful lighting. Uh, you go to a city yeah. of, like Paris, it's the city of light. And at yeah. night, you sit on the, on the Montmartre and you look at the town and by every arrondissement, lights up, just boom, boom, boom. You can lace together all the monuments and then they're lit. And then, uh, you know, at a certain time, they turn off the lights and you got to go, hey, what happened to my lights? But they, they have to <laughs> be careful. Uh, Lyon in France is a city famous for lighting and all this uplighting and concepts and lighting I never appreciated. But once I've seen it, then when I travel, I go, oh, they've put some thoughtfulness into that. Totally. It's always intentional, and that's yeah. the fun part of it. It's nice to see good traumatic ones, but even when it's not traumatic, someone's making some kind of decision, and I, I find that stuff fascinating. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roman Mars, and his book is The 99% Invisible City. And we're talking about how wherever we go, we can sharpen our abilities to observe and um, make it a more interesting experience. Roman, one thing that's not invisible when you're in a city is graffiti. What's your take on graffiti, and, and what are the trends that you see when it comes to graffiti? Well, I mean, I have different sort of feelings in different times. Like, I think as an expression of a city and the people in it, I think I'm pretty sympathetic to certain types of graffiti. But of course, it's all sort of dependent on taste. Like if it's artistic and interesting, yeah. I'm way into it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if it's, and if it's, you know, just a a lazy tag. I'm, I'm not. And so as boards were going up, you know, last year in the summer during the sort of uprising period and, and COVID and in, in downtown Oakland where I work, 
all kinds of murals and stuff devoted to Black Lives Matter and stuff. And it was lovely to see all mm -hmm. that stuff, all that expression. Yeah. But when someone tags my trash cans, I mean, I'm not really all that bothered by it, but <laughs> but it's not beautiful to me. Well, it can be um, it can be street art or it can be defacing public property. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's within the eye of the beholder. In, yeah. in Europe, I, I think they embrace it more than we do here in the United yeah. States. And, and some cities are commissioning art to be done on entire walls of buildings, and it's uh, become actually a, a tourist attraction. I mean, you go to the tourist office in, in Glasgow and you pick up a, a, a map that highlights where all the, the fun Banksy art is around the town, you know? Yeah, I think that is a great response to street art, to facilitate it and to, and to support it. Like, there's a mural on Shattuck in Berkeley next to the Walgreens or something. And it, it is like my favorite yeah. spot yeah. in all of Berkeley. It is so beautiful. I just love it. I purposely go by it. <laughs> I just love it. I struggle with it because I don't like any visual pollution. And in Europe, we've got this, every subway car, every train car is just scribbled all over. And yeah. I find that's a shame. But I also realize there's a subculture that's got something to say and people who live there can fixate on this or they can just kind of see past it and not let it get them down. It's an interesting uh, challenge, and it's part of modern living, and in especially urban living. Absolutely. I think that's a great response, is to sort of embrace the art that you like. And then I think everything about a city is just people are just trying to express themselves. And if you give them avenues and, and yeah. um, foster the type of, of thing you want and involve more people in the conversation, I think you'll get the city you want more than fighting it. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and, you know, my whole world as a tour guide is to help people enjoy walking around the city in a meaningful way. Roman Mars has made an art form of that. I mean, he's written the book 99% Invisible City that talks about how we can walk through a city and see things that aren't sightseeing attractions in your guidebook, but just it's the art of walking through a town and, and knowing why what you see is there. And there's lots of things we might miss. Roman, you talk about garbage bins that are designed to keep clever animals uh, away from their lunch. <laughs> yeah. A huge part of a city is that we share this space with uh, synanthropes, uh, animals that get along well with humanity and the things that we build. And one of the synanthropes that thrives in particular in our cities are raccoons. And they have those creepy little hands and they can get into a lot of mischief. <laughs> yes, they should. And in Toronto in particular has a love-hate relationships with their raccoons. And they spent a great deal of money and time and effort to create trash bins with locking mechanisms to keep raccoons out, but, but allow people to still use them. Every city's got garbage story. to deal with, and they, and, they, and they deal with that in a different <laughs> way. Right. Every city's got uh, sewer systems, and they have manhole covers. And a lot of cities yeah. take pride in the, in the design on their manhole cover. Absolutely. I mean, I personally think like even the most like basic industrial looking manhole cover is pretty beautiful. Like, like that's where my, you know, like that's where my aesthetic like lines up. But there's cities like Osaka and Japan where there was this real effort, you know, to highlight the, the sort of marvel of municipal water. And so they began running contests to paint their yes. their sewer grates in beautiful colors. And, and it both sort of celebrates the city and also celebrates this modern marvel of municipal water and waste that we tend to take for granted. Oh, and speaking of um, beautifying a town and, and taking pride, I'm just really struck by how in so many urbanscapes in the United States, there are just electric wires and utility poles everywhere. And to me, it's <laughs> just visual pollution. And yeah. in a lot of Europe, you don't see those wires and those poles. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it's really just a matter of... Um of priorities. I mean, I mean, most of the time you see wires in places that are, have less money. And then, you know, like in, in like around where I am, the neighborhoods with wires are the poorer neighborhoods and the neighborhoods without wires are the richer neighborhoods. 
it's certainly easier, you know, to run wires and, you know, cheaply above ground and then road ground is more expensive and it's just a matter of choice. You know? But just last time I was in Munich, I remember stepping out of my hotel and there was a, a little like temporary bridge from the hotel to the street and the sidewalk was pulled up. And that evening when I came back, the sidewalk was all put back into place. And I realized <laughs> what they do instead of rewiring from above, they just pick up the, the sidewalk bricks. They find their pipes under the sidewalk and they do the yeah. fix and then they put the bricks back on there and everything's the same again. So, you know, that, that's their priority. I just think it's a beautiful thing when a society can, can invest in that. Just, get it together. Just yeah. get it together. <laughs> just get it together. Another thing is, uh, yeah. you know, you go from city to city and you find, you just feel like this city council cares. I mean, I see that on the design of the garbage cans in London. I see that in Vienna now with global warming and there's old people that really need shade and they need water and they mm -hmm. have shade and they have water that's put there because it's really hot in the summer. Uh, but that's nothing new. You write about the Benson Bubblers in Portland, where a philanthropist actually just thought, let's give the people some free running water. Yeah. I mean, this was a huge problem, clean water that was accessible to the public. I mean, so much so that in the sort of early days of the American Republic, you know, people drank fermented, you know, cider and stuff. Even kids did because it was the only good water you could get because it had been, you know, fermented yeah. enough that it killed the bacteria. And so clean water is a huge cornerstone of a healthy society. And you know, it took some people to, you know, present public water fountains to make it so that that could be, um, that spread and, and keep the society healthy. And sometimes it's a reflection of the populace through the government that they elect. And other times it's just a, a caring individual who's got a lot of money. Uh, in Paris, they got these elegant Wallace fountains that are hundred yeah. years old and you see them all over town and they're just beautiful ways to get a drink of water. Absolutely. I like it when they can combine beauty with this, yeah. this really basic utility. It's a nice combination. Roman Mars hosts a podcast and radio feature series called 99% Invisible from his home base near San Francisco. He explains many of the conspicuous and inconspicuous elements that surround us in today's cities in his book, The 99% Invisible City, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. His website is romanmars.com. Roman, this has been such a delight <laughs> just exploring your passion for this. And you put a lot of work into the book and into your podcast, 99% Invisible. Is there something fundamental that you'd like people to take away from this work when it comes to how we share our lives together in these uh, urban scapes that we call home? I think it's just to be aware that the world is designed and that we tend to notice bad design that we run across that sort of gets in our way and we tend to ignore a good design. And if you can keep your eyes open to good design, you'll find that a city for the most part was made in these ways where people thought about things so that you wouldn't have to worry, you know, that they anticipated something that you didn't even know was a problem. And in a way you can get kind of embraced by the built world because you realize that there are people behind it and they're doing good things for you. And uh, it kind of makes me a little bit more of an optimistic person when I view the world that way. And it varies from country to country and society to society. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not <laughs> directly associated with how much money they have. It's, it's what's their approach to their society. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, regulations are, are just a way to, I think, to chaperone capitalism and uh, how a society works together. And some societies have more regulations and others have less regulations. 
But you can be in humble societies that care, and you can be in wealthy societies that it's just a free-for-all and every man for himself. Mm -hmm. And it sure makes a difference when a city cares about the design of the cities that people have to share. Absolutely. It does. And it's nice to sort of notice when the built environment is a reflection of our values. And if you live in a place where it's not, you know, get involved, do a thing, even if it's putting (laughs) tagging graffiti or if it's um, putting up a little bridge so that somebody doesn't have to walk over a puddle or anything like that. It's just being engaged with the city is, I think, a great thing to do, whether you're traveling or at home. All right. Roman Mars, thanks so much for the tour guiding and for the inspiration. Best wishes. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Don't sit and wait, don't sit and dream, put on a smile, go find a scene, I'm sure you'd meet someone who would really love you. Paul Theroux takes us under the wave at Waimea on Oahu's North Shore. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. He's written more than 50 novels and works of nonfiction. For his latest, Paul Theroux explores the setting close to his own home on Oahu's North Shore. It's a fictional story of a surfer past his prime who's forced to confront a tragedy of his own making. While driving home on a rainy night after a boozy party, he hits and kills what appears to be a homeless man on a bicycle. In telling this story, Paul reflects on the realities many of us might face as we get older and come to terms with where we feel at home and what kind of legacy we might leave behind. The book is called Under the Wave at Waimea. Paul Theroux joins us from Hawaii Public Radio in Honolulu. Aloha, Paul. Aloha, Rick. How are you? I'm doing good considering everything, and it's just great to have you back on our show. It's great to be here. It's always lovely to talk to you. Thank you. You are so prolific, and you're just celebrating your 80th birthday, and you've come out with a book, Under the Wave at Waimea. It's a novel about a surfer, Joe Sharkey, who... um, kills a guy while driving drunk, and he and his girlfriend want to know who he killed, and the story unfolds. But it's, as so many of your books, it's about more than that. And here we're talking about surf culture and about getting older and and about the North Shore of Oahu. Uh, You wrote under the wave at Waimea, not riding the wave or catching the wave. Was that a choice, that you're under this massive wave that sort of dwarfs the surfer? Yes, yes, that's a good point to say under rather than on the wave. You know, there's a, there's a famous painting by Hokusai called Under the Wave at Kanagawa, mm-hmm. and it shows a very small boat with a gigantic kind of clawed wave. It's a Japanese woodblock print. Do you know the print by yes, any chance? Yes, I know the print, and it just sort of, um, it just connects you with nature in an awe-inspiring kind of way, I think. And we look very closely, you see these tiny sampans or little tiny fishing boats, and They look so fragile next to the wave. So I had that in mind. Joe Sharkey in my book has that tattoo on his back, Ah. except that there's a surfer under it rather than a small boat. You were asking about the wave. So the wave is uh, an actual thing. It's also a metaphor in the book, a metaphor for a problem in life, a problem to solve, something to get across. He is under the wave because he's killed a man by driving his car near the bay called Waimea Bay. He lives on the North Shore. And after he kills the man, bad things start happening to him. And his girlfriend, lover, Olive, at the time says, we need to figure this out. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. Things keep going wrong. Who is the man that that you kill? He said, well, I 
I hit a drunk homeless guy. And she said, no, you killed a man. You didn't hit a drunk homeless guy. You killed a man. Who is he? No one could figure out who he is. He has no clear identity. The angle of the book is finding out who the man is. But it's also a story of Sharky's life. So the first part is he hits the man, kills him. Second part is his history. He came to Hawaii as an eight-year-old, and he's still a haole. He's still kind of an outsider. Mm-hmm. He has a tough time at school. But he survives by being a surfer. Surfing, being offshore, being on a wave is his salvation. Like a lot of people that I know here, he's committed to it. He has no other life. Mm-hmm. The epigraph is by Duke Kahanamoku. Duke Kahanamoku said, out of the water, I am nothing. And that's true of Sharky. It's true of a lot of other uh, people that I know. Wow. That, well, that's a comment on the whole um, surf culture that you've chosen to live in on the north shore of Oahu, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, and I would say I've lived in Hawaii for well over 30 years, 31 plus years. I don't know any intellectuals here. I've never been inside the University of Hawaii. I've never been interviewed locally. I don't know any politicians But I know a lot of surfers. I know water people. I know very brave people here who get out in the in the biggest waves. I mean, one of my neighbors is Garrett McNamara. He surfed a 78 foot wave at Nazare in Portugal. Mm. If you can imagine a 78 foot wave is a five story house. Mm. And not only do you fall off that five story house, but the five story house chases you down the street and tries to demolish you. So my life here has been on the water. Paul Theroux's latest novel, Under the Wave at Waimea, is set among the surfer culture of Oahu's North Shore. In it, he explores the character of an aging surfer whose status is starting to fade, like some of his own tattoos. Paul's more recent works of nonfiction discuss forgotten parts of America in Deep South and the scene he found road-tripping across Mexico on the Plain of Snakes. It's interesting to me, Paul, that you've written this basically on the eve of your 80th birthday. You're featuring a 62-year-old kind of former big-shot surfer. And I'm just wondering, you've been observing this surfer culture for 30 years. As you age, do you grow away from it and become more distant and, and not welcome in it? Or is everybody on the same moving sidewalk and it's just a celebration even if you can no longer get up on the waves with your surfboard? That's a really interesting question, Rick. Uh, I have a good friend, Jock Sutherland. Jock Sutherland is in his 70s. Whenever there's surf up, Jock is surfing. Mm-hmm. The fellow that I mentioned, Garrett McNamara, is in his mid to late 50s. He surfed this giant wave As you get older, you surf differently. You surf on a different board. You don't do the moves that a younger surfer does. A younger surfer, if you can imagine someone on a skateboard, the kind of wheelies that they do up and down. um, Mm -hmm. A a young guy on a wave is a hot dog. I mean, he's really, he does a a lot of acrobatics. Older surfers don't do acrobatics, but they do go straighter. They go on a a larger board and they, they surf. You know, Paul, I'm a skier, and I think it's the same way. I remember in my youth, I used to get air. It was just part of skiing. I don't get air anymore when I'm skiing, but I have the same thrill, really. But I do it as an older skier instead of a young hotshot. You can still be part of that culture, but I'm just curious about the um, 
intimidation of aging when it comes to youth culture? Because when I'm in doing my work, I'm in Soho in London or in the Ramblas in Barcelona or in a beer hall in Munich, I have a term, it's called youth on the rampage. And I feel like I'm floating kind of invisibly through a world that I'm really no longer part of. I want to be, and I'm having a good time, but the culture is not, I'm not quite connecting with it. Do you find this surf culture is a little bit that way for you as, as you observe it over 30 years and now you're looking at it from an 80-year-old perspective instead of a person in the prime of life perspective? A little. I know exactly what you mean. And this book, and we all, older people, are not only aware of the surf, of the youth culture, but the youth, they're aware of the youth culture who's kind of nipping at our heels first. Right. Secondly, they have no historical sense. They don't know where we've been. They don't know where the country's been. So you mention the Kennedy assassination or Martin Luther King, or you mentioned even the Clinton administration, yeah. and they don't have a clue. So people who don't have a clue but think they have a clue. So that's one problem. Well, let's talk about that for just a minute because this is something I've been tuned into lately as a writer. My references, which I think are really interesting, are becoming understandable by a smaller and smaller percent of my readership. Yes. I'll give you a very concrete example of that. About a month ago, I needed a new blotter for my, my desk. So I went to the local, we have a very big stationery store here, and I went in and I said, I need a blotter. And <laughs> I don't know whether it's my, my New England accent, a blotter, but I said a blotter, I spelt it. And no one in that store, they were all under 30, no one knew what a blotter was. <laughs> so, so I explained what it was. They said, do you mean a desk pad? I said, not a desk pad, a blotter for blotting ink. Well, no one uses ink, but actually I, I write in longhand right, and I write with yeah. ink. So, the, so the, the reference of references that you're talking about, but it's not only references like a blotter, it's books, books that we all read as youths. And Moral Greenberg, Helen Keller, you know, there's, there's great books, great experiences that's uh, not in their repertoire of understanding. And that, that kind of makes it tougher for us to do the, the writing we want to do. We have to temper how we sh explain things if we want to be accessible to the younger generation. Yes, that's true. But I want to say something about surfing mm -hmm. and skiing. Mm -hmm. You talk about the youths. When you're skiing, you're 60-something. You're right. Do you feel 60-something when you're skiing? I would say not. The thing about surfing and why Under the Wave at Waimea is a book about both aging and feeling young is when we're on, in a sport, not a competitive sport, not vying for prizes, but doing it for fun. Right. Sport for fun. You feel younger. <laughs> you Even sure when you yeah. see baseball players on a field, yeah. it's like boys playing. When you see a woman's softball team, you think that's like girls playing. Often football players seem to me like young guys, like high school kids. And they're big, but they're playing. When you're in a sport that you love, you feel younger. You feel rejuvenated. Now, there are young people here who surf and paddle a canoe, but I paddle an outrigger canoe. And I sometimes, as I said, I sometimes surf bumps in the wave. Mm -hmm. But um, I surf swells, let's say. Yeah. So it's called an OC1. It's a single man outrigger. I was paddling it about two or three months ago. I was paddling and some Hawaiian guys saw me and they said, that's a nice, that's a nice canoe. It was a brand new canoe. It's called a Pueo. Great canoe. I said, yeah. And we started talking. And they said, they, uh, they said, where do you go? I said, well, I'm, I'm just, I'm still learning. So, you know, still learning to paddle. I'm a bit cautious. And they said, you can run with us. You can run with us. I said, 
are you sure? Yeah. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm an old guy. I, I Actually, I said, I'm a kupuna. Kupuna in, in Hawaii is a, a respected elder, but it's an older person. Right. I said, I'm a kupuna. They said, doesn't matter. We need a kupuna. Ah. I said, I need, I need your manau. Manau is the kind of knowledge that you're kind of gut feeling knowledge, instinctive knowledge. I said, I need your manau. They said, we, well, we need you as a kupuna. So these three Hawaiian guys who are probably, they're probably in their mid-50s. Mm-hmm. Middle-aged guys, but tough, really tough. They're um, workers at Schofield Barracks. Um, nice guys. So they said, you can run with us. And even this expression, like, you can run with us, was like, it was the kindest, most generous gesture. And so every Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to go paddling with them. And when I'm paddling with them, I feel younger. I feel like them. You know, they, they sing, they laugh, they tease each other. Uh, we go in, in a row. Sometimes we go up a river, in, mm. and then we go out of Haleiwa Harbor to a place called Point Point. And I feel younger. So this thing about <laughs> the young—I <laughs> don't want to disparage you. You're, you're an old fogey when you disparage the young, but connecting <laughs> with the young, connecting. Well, that's that's the lease on life. That's that's what's the good news. Paul Theroux is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest novel is set in the tropical breezes of North Shore Oahu in Under the Wave at Waimea. He's written more than 30 works of fiction, including Hotel Honolulu and The Mosquito Coast, which was made into a movie in 1986 and is being recreated as a series for Apple TV starring his nephew, Justin Theroux. You can find more of his work at paultheroux.com. So, Paul, you've chosen to spend, I guess you I understand you split your time between Cape Cod and Hawaii. Uh, and these two worlds, uh, well, Larry sent us an email from Larry Lives in Boston. And he asks, how do you compare the coastal community of Cape Cod to Hawaii? How is the food different, the same, the people? They may be opposite sides of the world, but beach towns everywhere have some commonalities. Do you agree? Uh, so you're in a beach town world. Is it similar to Cape Cod? Is there a reason that you're in two beach communities? Yes, there is a reason. I grew up uh, outside Boston. I'm a coastal New Englander, and we moved to the Cape later in my life. And I think that uh, living on Cape Cod, you're living with, with the sea, with waves, with fishermen. I grew up that way. And what Cape Codders have in common with Hawaiians is the freedom of the sea, that no matter how crowded it is on land with you know, one thing or another, you can always escape to the sea. You can swim away. You can paddle away. You can, you can. You can even sail sit on the away, beach and look away, which is what a lot of people do. They just park their car and yeah. look at the water. And there's a zen-like quality to the beauty of the water, a calmness that you can see. The great difference is that I'm in the Pacific Ocean on a volcanic island, and under Hawaii is a mountain. We're on the top of a mountain. Below Hawaii is a substantial volcanic mountain. Mm-hmm. Cape Cod is a terminal moraine. A terminal moraine is, is the leading edge of a glacier. So it's sand. It's sand dunes. It's not like the main coast, which is granite. But that's a big difference. So under, under Cape Cod, you find, if you dig down, you just find sand and little else. There's no, there's no solid rock there. Hawaii is, is built on solid rock. Hawaii is is like an indestructible massif in the middle of the ocean. It can never be destroyed. And in fact, it even grows because of volcanoes. Um, Cape Cod can be swept away. The the coast changes with every season. So when I go back in June 
to my house in Cape Cod, the contour of the sand is different. Paul, one thing I I just think you have a real sense for, and it comes across so vividly in your writing, is this respect of nature. You were just talking about Cape Cod and these, you know, thunderous mountains in the middle of the ocean in Hawaii. And you talk about the force of the wave, the wave as a force of nature, and then being on the top of it and enjoying the view and how water is a part of Hawaii as much as the land is. It's, it's a sensibility that, that seems to be really important to you. I could say that uh, it's easy to answer. I spend virtually every afternoon on the beach in a folding chair writing. I write at the beach as well as at my desk. I hate spending a hot afternoon at my desk, so I, I, just, I go to the beach and I, I write and I look at the waves. And what you say about the identity of, of the water is true. Every piece of, of water in Hawaii has a name. Every break has a name. Chun's Reef, uh, Lani's, Pipeline, Poena Point, Ali'i Beach. Everything has a name in downtown. Yeah. Uh, for example, this Bombora, Magic Island, Bomboras. A tourist or a non-water person looks at the water and says, what's that? <laughs> it looks like indistinguishable from everything else. But that wave has a name and an identity. There's a certain shape to it. The whole of Hawaii is surrounded by named places, n- named water. And that I tried to give a, um, a greater identity to by describing the waves. So the, there are a lot of descriptions of water and waves in the book, which I suppose I studied. I mean, the great challenge of writing is making you see, making you see the thing, whether it's a tree, a person, a face, a quality of light, or an ocean. And you have the opportunity to connect with it. And, I mean, that's kind of maybe the magic of surfing. I mean, even in your book, I, you wrote Joe Sharkey, who was coaching a, a, a trio of ragtag kids who, who, who were l- working on body surfing. And, and Joe said, in the water, you're somebody special. I mean, that takes you to a new place. Yes, that's true. I th- and I think that's the liberation of, of Sharkey in the book. When he's under the wave at Waimea because he's got a problem. But he, get, he solves the problem by understanding the liberation of water. And also, his girlfriend helps him find the identity of this man. I think that we all find, I mean, I find being in the water, being a paddler or a swimmer, a very liberating thing. And even sitting on the beach, writing, looking at the sea, Mm. is really a wonderful experience. I'm the same way. You know, and I've got to be on salt water also. There's something about it. But I just love to be where the land hits the sea. I don't know what it is about it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. His book is Under the Wave at Waimea. Paul, it is so clear that you had, you must have had fun writing this book. It's got so many dimensions and there's so much, it feels like you you are interested in saying with a certain economy of, of words because you're saying things at the same time and it's, uh, and it just makes me wonder, you must get great joy out of this whole surf and culture scene. Where are you most happy? I'm happiest at my desk writing well, and if I'm not there, in the water, paddling under my own steam, paddling a a canoe, paddling a kayak, swimming, snorkeling, being in the water, but not a motorboat. Boats on motors don't interest me. When I'm in a boat, when I'm in a canoe, paddling, paddling with my mates, I feel younger. I'm 80 years old. I don't feel 80 when I'm in the water. Well, then, for the benefit of all of us, keep paddling because we want more of your work. Paul Theroux, thank you so much, and uh, happy surfing. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. 
We get website support from Andrew Wakelin, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to our friends at Hawaii Public Radio for their help this week. Find out what Rick's been thinking about lately on his Facebook and Twitter pages or read his blog at ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.